Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocalimp Podcast. First announced at the Frankfurt Motor Show last year, Honda has revealed the final production model of its new electric car, the Honda E. And Pocalint's editor Chris Hall has already driven one. Fresh off the plane from Valencia, he joins us to tell us more about what he thinks and what Honda's new car means for the industry as a whole. Meanwhile, during CES earlier in the month, I caught up with Yasushi Murayama, the global head of product planning at Panasonic TV, to talk about the company's new televisions, the importance of filmmaker mode, which is added to its new sets this year, and whether services like Netflix really are keeping people watching telly. And Cam from Pocalin also joins us to give his, his opinion on the Tato smart heating system he's been using for the last 12 months. Should you go smart when it comes to heating in your home, or is it all a big faff? But first, back to you, Chris. Tell us more about the Honda E. Well, the Honda E is probably one of the more exciting electric cars that is coming out in 2020. The reason that I think it's exciting is because of the way that it looks. And the, it's, it's that car that they didn't bother with a the concept. They went straight to a production version of it and didn't change anything at all. So it's joyous and exciting and interesting and different and honda hasn't watered it down or changed it anyway and that's you know that's the thing that really stands out about the honda e is it's so refreshing and exciting and i think that's important not only for honda as a brand whose cars perhaps aren't the most exciting but also for electric cars to have something that is different on the road they haven't just taken a production model like the jazz and said oh it's an electric jazz they've made something that is completely new and that's the thing that really excites me about the honda e now we saw at the tail end of 2019 uh, quite a few uh, electric cars being announced but kind of with the perception of uh, it will be available soon because of battery holdups and stuff is that the case here are we are we likely to does this kick off a, a, a new 2020 electric car season it kind of feels like that. Yeah, it's time for a new draft of electric cars coming in. And you're right, some of them have been delayed. Um, I went to another car launch for the Honda, no, for the Peugeot E208 yesterday, and their electric cars hadn't been delivered yet. Um, and, and this is kind of the experience that we're getting with electric cars. There's a lot of options appearing, a lot of being announced, but you can't always get to buy them straight away. The Honda E, at least, is available to order from £26,000, which is one of the more affordable models as well. But it does start off start this new season. We've got the electric Mini that's going to be coming up soon, which is priced similarly. You know, these are, these are small cars, compact, offering a slightly lower range than some of the models that we've seen before, but trying to make up for that with excitement and practicality, very much pitched at this sort of urban, short mileage kind of usage. And then we've got the Tesla Model Y that's coming up in this year. And, you know, the, one of the big ones is going to be the uh, Volkswagen ID3 that was also revealed at the end of 2019 and should be available to buy in 2020. So, yeah, there's a lot of electric cars to come. 
And that's one of the things noticing with the Honda E. It's only got a range of what, just over 100, 120 miles. Do we think that you're going to start seeing a, a sort of a divide within the industry? So you've got one end, you've got the sort of city runarounds, the Honda E's, for example, and at the top end, you've got the sort of Tesla Model 3s, which are like 300 miles plus. Or, you know, is that where the market's going? Well, it's interesting because electric cars have always been associated with range and range anxiety because you fill up your electric car, you'll maybe get a couple of hundred miles out of it. You fill up your diesel car, you might get 700 miles out of it. And that's the thing that people are trying to get to grips with at the moment. Up to now, we've seen cars launching where they've been obviously trying to extend the range and saying, yes, we can get over 200 miles. Yes, we can do 300 miles in some cases. But this is a very different departure. Honda's message is very much that a small battery has advantages. First of all, it doesn't take as long to charge, naturally. It doesn't weigh as much, so it can be more efficient. You can pack it into a smaller car, and it can be more affordable. And that's really where this comes in, because those longer-range cars are all above £30,000 or $30,000. And these this new generation is trying to drag that back down again, But it does mean that you have to make a decision about exactly what you're going to have your car doing. If you're the sort of person who spends a lot of time on the motorway doing 100 or 200 miles a day, you're going to need a long range car. You're going to need to know where your charging is. If you only do 30 miles in a week, then you really don't need to be paying for that range. And that's the argument here. It's probably going to be one of those cars that people, people who live in cities will say, this is perfect for me. There are no tailpipe emissions. There's enough charge to get me through my weekly or monthly use, perhaps, in some cases. And it doesn't cost as much as some of the other models. I suspect that out of the cities, there will be a lot of people who look at it and say, this is a perfect second car. We'll keep the massive one for taking the fridge to the dump and that kind of stuff. But we'll have the second one, which we'll <laughs> use for the commute and to go to the supermarket. And and that's it. this is one of the key points, I think, is that to be able to convince people that they should make a compromise on the range, you have to give them something else. And that's where I think the design, the refreshing design comes into what Honda has done, the way that they have filled the interior with displays, the way that they have made it. It's, it sounds like a cliche, but it is like a lounge in, in, in when you're sitting in it. It's, it's like being in your front room. You know, there's, there's wood trim. It, it's different. It's not a big swathe of black plastic. You're not sitting in what you might think of as a normal car. And that's the that's the important thing here. Now, one of the most polarizing things, and this is probably the final question on the Honda, one of the most polarizing things is sometimes with electric cars is you don't have a front grille and they kind of, you know, how they understand that. And looking at pictures on pocketland.com, you know, it looks like they've got around that. The other thing I've noticed, which is quite striking, is there's no wing mirrors. How, how and you've driven this, how, how was that? I did have some reservations about driving with a digital camera system instead. And in this case, there are cameras on those on the on the wings, the same position as you had the mirrors. There, there are cameras looking backwards, of course, and there are two displays just inside the just at the end of the dash. So you glance to the left, glance to the right, and you see the image reflected from outside, and and it's very much as you would expect. Instead of looking out of the window, you're just you look in there, and it only takes a couple of minutes to then figure out that that's what's going on. That's fine. So in terms of the experience. It's actually fantastic because it does open up a lot of opportunities to do things that you can't do with a reflective piece of glass. The first one of those is that you can have a wider angle. You know, you can, I could, I perceived that I could see things, 
you know, in within the blind spot that you would never see in a normal mirror, having driven a lot of cars and fiddled around with the positions a lot, I just felt like I could see more without any adjustments. And you can change the angle from a sort of narrow or wide angle to suit your preference. And you also get around silly things like in some cars, when you put it into reverse, one of the wing mirrors will dip so that you can see the pavements and, you know, see where you're reversing into. But that mm. then means you can't see straight back and things like that with a slightly wider view offered by these cameras, I could see the lines on the road as well as the vehicles that were behind me without having to move any mirrors around or anything like that. They're coated, so they repel water, so they don't seem to get dirty. We drove in some horrendous conditions with lashing rain, lots of road spray, and the view remained perfectly clear throughout the whole thing. And the best bit of all on the Honda is that they are standard. You don't have to pay extra for them. They just come as part of the package. Still to come, Cam talks smart heating and how he's been getting on over the last 12 months. Uh, I can say once having it installed, it's it's definitely something that's worthwhile having. We might all be hooked on the latest box sets from Netflix or Amazon, but that doesn't mean we're watching them on a big TV in the living room. Our appetites have changed and the way we're watching television is changing. New picture processors, 8K, and a promise to allow you to remove some of the enhancement effects we've seen added over the years with things like filmmaker mode, all featured heavily. Panasonic has been shouting about the Hollywood experience in your home for a couple of years now, and this year was no different. It hopes that its latest flagship TV, the HZ2000, will deliver the best 4K experience you can get on the market. I managed to pull aside Yasushi Murayama, the global head of product planning at Panasonic TV, for a quick chat at a very noisy launch event in the Waterfall Storia Hotel just off the Vegas Strip to talk about some of the announcements, including filmmaker mode, why Panasonic doesn't offer an 8K set, and how the company stays relevant in an ever-changing landscape. I started by asking Yasushi why filmmaker mode was so important to Panasonic. So filmmaker mode is actually a mode that was generated from the creative community of the movie industry and this has been an ongoing dispute or ongoing uh, frustration from the creative community that all the efforts and time that they invest to make a good movie uh, with all these attention to the details and the colors and the gradations are actually not being delivered to the customers to the actual customers at their fullest so I think Panasonic now can help uh, trying to clear that, which is actually a benefit for the customers as well because they will be seeing whatever the creative content, uh, or whatever the content included as a creative intent, which they haven't seen until now, but now they can see. And was there a key moment? You know, one that strikes me for that is is like Game of Thrones last year, that, that night that night episode mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you know lots of people just yes. couldn't work out what was going on. Did that did that inspire you to, to work on this harder or is, is that is that the kind of the reason and you know that <laughs> um, in fact that issue, especially after the HDR format came about, um, those uh, high brightness contents actually uh, turning dark in a brightly lit room has been, that issue has been going on for a couple of years now actually. And it has been noticed by the professionals or the AV reviews, let's say, and it's been an ongoing dispute for a couple of years. And the Game of Thrones was actually so evident that it became, the problem was became uh, evident 
to the regular consumers who may have not noticed that kind of uh, brightness degradation until then. But the Game of Thrones, with the exposure and everything, now they can see that because that episode is really, really dark. Now, one of the big conversations that we're seeing at CES is all about 8K mm -hmm. and, you know, either standardizing the format or some of the manufacturers, TV manufacturers, saying 8K is the new thing, it's the new 4K and it's pushing mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. How long do you perceive it to be before 8K is a reality in the majority of people's homes? In majority? Yeah. I would say it will take a couple of years, I would have to say. Because as of now, I mean, there's no native 8K contents out there and the panels are still very expensive, so you can see it on the storefronts at astronomical prices. And at, we at Panasonic, we haven't actually launched an 8K product yet. And that's because since there is no 8K content available out there, there's nothing that we can measure if we are delivering the right picture quality on the 8K to the consumers. And we just don't wanna, we're not, we're not the kind of company that we just wanna slap an 8K resolution panel to a 4K chassis and say it's an 8K TV, I don't want to do that, so. And do you think over time it will be an inevitability that we'll move to 8K? Or do you think there's still worries within the industry that it might sort of, you know, 3D TV, for example, everybody's talking about that, never really mm -hmm. materialized mm -hmm. at home? That's a very good question, actually, because I don't think, I don't think anybody in the industry can actually tell that this is it. But from the past, we have been seeing that used to be SD, became HD, became Full HD, and became UHD, which is 4K. So every generation of resolution is actually being accepted by the market over the course of time. So 8K may be accepted in the future, but there's one difference uh, compared to the Full HD or the, the UHD realm that we had in the past, the 8K is actually so fine, the resolution is just too fine for the human eye to actually detect the difference. And you need, you need a big screen size to actually justify the difference of the resolution of having 4K or the 8K. So that's why we are thinking it's gonna take more time and sure. it will probably become if it's going to be ever accepted in the market, it's not going to be that people need the 8K, but it just becomes a standard. Just like the 4K did, just like the UHD, and uh, the, the Full HD did. One of the questions that we sometimes get asked on Pocketland is, you know, a changing dynamic, a younger audience is mm -hmm. not necessarily watching as much TV, or they're watching TV in a different scenarios. They're True. watching it on their, on their phones, on their tablets, even in their cars mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. How does... TV maker like Panasonic stay relevant to that audience that doesn't necessarily see a TV in their living room as the main viewing experience? Hmm. So, mm, you have a lot of good questions actually. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, we know, I mean, including my kids. Including my kids, they all watch the contents from uh, on their tablets, on their phones. But that doesn't. It's not stopping them from actually watching a very high quality movie on a big screen. And probably the size and the color reproduction that the TV can deliver compared to a tablet or a smartphone actually makes a difference. And that's why we are uh, putting so much effort and investment on developing that difference of audio and visual entertainment. Because smartphones and tablets are basically, I mean, therefore, inform information display, right? But TV, 
is a device that's specifically developed for audio and visual entertainment. And we still believe that makes a difference. Cool. And we're seeing a lot of a lot of interest, you know, there's a lot of money being invested into content at the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, Netflix, sure. Disney Plus, sure. uh, you know, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, mm -hmm. all these mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Is that are you seeing as, as a company, is that having a a positive effect on people wanting to buy good televisions? Or is it are they are those people because you know there's billions being spent mm -hmm. on content mm -hmm. each 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 mm -hmm. month. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you seeing an uplift of, of the interest of TV because the content is there now? Um, maybe not in that aspect. It's the, the online content is actually repl replacing the broadcast. So the content for the consumers has always been there for the TV. So now the content is being shifted from uh, over-the-air broadcast to online. But it's the content is the content, right? And. I think people are not affected too much of increasing online contents actually uh, driving them to buy new TVs because content has been out there anyway. But uh, I'm personally curious how this online uh, on-demand video service is actually going to go because everybody's claiming for a monthly subscription mm. and everybody's like blocking all the contents. You can see this one on this, but you can't see this one on that. So that is actually um, creating some difficulty, let's say, for the consumers, which is similar to what happened with the, with the cable industry in the US. It's, it's kind of almost that feeling of at some point it's going to have to give, yeah. in that you can't just subscribe to everything. No, I can't. So uh, one of the final questions I have is we're starting to see non-traditional TV companies think about launching TVs. So I'm thinking like the Honor brand, which is uh, Huawei, uh, OnePlus have talked about launching TV. Mm -hmm. And do you see that as, as a threat? Do you see that as just more opportunity to showcase your products against you know, the, the heritage you've got there? Or is it not really a... Um, it is a threat because most of those manufacturers actually market their product at very low prices. So that affects the whole industry. I mean, the TV industry has always been tough because, I mean, it's a, it's a big ticket item. So the industry has been, always been tough. And that kind of like low cost, like, I don't know, what you call it? Uh, very low priced marketing companies. Barrier to entry. Kind of. uh, is, is not really helping the industry, let's say. Yeah. But, I mean, we buy, we buy those TVs at Panasonic and we compare it, but the performance is like totally different. So we just hope and appreciate those customers who can actually tell the difference between uh, some, some manufacturer who started making TVs from yesterday uh, to uh, companies that have been building TVs for decades now. I think there's a pretty big difference in the experience that we have accumulated over the years. With the winter months in the Norman Hemisphere at least, well and truly here, Pogolink Cam's Bunton joins us to talk about smart heating, and in particular the Tado smart heating system he's been using over the last 12 months. With app controls, dedicated internet connected thermostats for your radiators and location services all part of the package, are there any disadvantages to the system and what's the cost involved in going smart? Cam, let's start at the beginning. Are you pleased you took the decision to get a smart heating system? 
Yeah, absolutely. If only because it's convenient and it's obviously it's, it's a way of saving money and energy without really even trying. Because um, I don't know, I know most smart home systems obviously work in a similar way, right? So you've got um, an app, you set your temperature and then it will keep to that temperature and then shut off your heating automatically when you reach that temperature. Like the old style manual ones, except uh, with Tado and others, it will use your location from your smartphone. So if you're not in the house, it'll switch your heating off and then bring it back up to temperature once you get closer to your home. So yeah, it's it's a really easy way to save money and energy and keep your house warm without really having to think about it too much. Now, we've been talking previously, I've, I've also got a, a smart home, uh, a smart heating system. I've, I've got the Honey, Honeywell Evo Home. Yeah. Uh, one of the big benefits and features I find is that you can that system allows you to have individual radiators controlled and connected via so each each radiator has a sensor and therefore not only is it controlling the room but you control the program of the room do you do you can you do that with the tado system do you find that is one of the big advantages yeah absolutely yes tado sells the uh, individual smart radiator thermostats that you attach directly onto your radiators so then you can set each room to a temperature that you want it to be and so once it gets to that temperature then the the thermostat on the radiator can then switch the radiator off and then obviously automatically saving energy. It saves you having to keep on going to your radiator knobs and turning them up and down to get the right temperature. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really good advantage, but also the, the sensors in the thermostat and the ones that are in the radiator, they can also detect when there's a window open in the room. So they'll shut off if there's a window open uh, and it can detect like air quality. So it'll tell you if your room's a bit too humid then you can turn the heating up and dry it out a bit or open a window and get some fresh air in and it tells you the air quality so it's it's a really useful tool to have and it gives you quite a good insight into the air quality in your home and in the surrounding areas and what do you think of you know i say one of the other advantages i like is the ability of 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 we're coming home and we think, as you say, you think, oh, I wonder, what, wonder whether it's a bit cold in the house or whatever. We'll turn the heating up. And you do that via your app and obviously all remotely. But have yeah. you found over the last year, have you found this kind of some disadvantages to being having a smart system? Um, they're not really. I mean, not disadvantages versus an old style manual one. Obviously, the, the probably the biggest disadvantage is the expense. Because you've got a, it's not a cheap thing that's supplied by your energy supplier. It's something that might cost you upwards of 150, 200 pounds to get a system installed, especially if you want the radiator thermostats as well as mm. the one on your, the main thermostat on your wall. So you've got to kind of judge whether it's going to save you enough money that you should get the thermostats installed. But I think over time, obviously, once you've had it for a couple of years, then I think you'll start seeing your money come back. And I suppose that's the problem, isn't it? Because you know some of these the individual thermostats, this kind of thirty to fifty pounds a radiator, and if you suddenly yeah, exactly. think, oh, hang on a minute, I've got quite a few radiators in my house, that price suddenly kind of goes up quite considerably. Yeah, exactly. And so obviously you're then sitting waiting to see if there's any Prime Day deals or Black Friday, and then trying to make the most of it and get it for as cheap as you possibly can. But uh, I can say, once having it installed, it's it's definitely something that's worthwhile having. And I think, I think for me, the, the thing I found with the Honeywell, I think it's you know it's a brilliant system and, and highly rated. Um, the, the unknown costs of uh, of actually the batteries that charge the the batteries that power the thermostats that are on your radiators. I don't know whether you have right. that with the Tado system as well. 
Well, this has been a a really interesting thing for me because the batteries haven't needed to be changed um, at all since I've set up the system 12 months ago. Um, So it's not something that you need to think about too much. And I actually had a really good experience with their customer service while I was reviewing it. They noticed one of my radiator units was being a little bit inefficient and wasn't working properly before I had even noticed it. And so the battery was going to run low. And they actually emailed me to arrange a replacement before I'd even spotted that there was a wow. problem. So that was actually fantastic. They got it all sorted and it was all, uh, I got the new one installed and it was done and dusted and I wasn't even aware there was a problem. So um, that was actually really good. Remote remote diagnostics. Do you think that's going to be the future of, of our smart homes, of, of companies saying, ah, oh, you, you look like you've, you've got a humidity problem building up in this room you should probably have a look at it or something well yeah it seems it seems to be that's the way tado is going at least a lot of their app now the version 3 plus of their app is built around the quality of your air the whether your heating's working properly they even got a, an option to to sign up for boiler repair they can detect when your boiler's got a problem and automatically arrange for you to have a repair done so um there's a lot of uh, smart automated stuff that used to be a bit of a hassle for us maybe 10 15 years ago and they're trying to get rid of all those pain points of having a, a heating system in your house so it's been really really good and i suppose the final word i mean i'm i'm sold on 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 a smart heating system i don't think i'd ever go back would you would you go back no absolutely not but primarily because i'm very lazy so <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, no, I definitely wouldn't go back. If only for the moments where you maybe go away for a long weekend or you go on, away on holiday and you know your heating is not going to be on, but it will keep it ticking over in case it's too cold and it stops it from frosting over or whatever. It's just it's that peace of mind that comes with having it, knowing that when you're in the house, your home is going to be warm, and that's that. It's it's really convenient. Well, that's it for this week's show. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you get a moment, can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on? It really will help raise our profile and let others know you like us too. Until next time, pip pip.